Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. I want to keep just talking about thankfulness. You know, because it's like, it's more than a meal. And it really is such a foundational part of the Christian life that, you know, I think the most important points that we should major on, we've made them about salvation and then moved on. You know, depending on which circle that you're in, you get born again, you think, oh, yeah, that cross stuff, I get that, I'm thankful, and then you move on to try to figure out what the deep stuff is, you know. And it, there is nothing deeper than the cross. Amen. I mean, there just is nothing deeper than understanding righteousness and then that becoming established in your life and you actually walking in grace. Because, you know, you, you hear about the good news, you, you finally take the shackles of religion off, you know, you quit giving because you think God's going to curse you, and it becomes more about generosity, it becomes more about this fruit of righteousness that's in you. You quit trying to pray to get stuff that God's already promised you, and then you go through that thing of, well, why am I praying now? And then you realize, oh, it's because I want a relationship with this father that I have, you know. And because of our father issues, we have to work all that stuff out and figure out how to have a relationship with a, 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 a God with no issues. And he, and he doesn't put his stuff on you. He just says... You can have as much of me as you want. Now, how close are you going to get? And so then we, you know, we transition through, and we're just excited. And then we, talk, and then we tell people that are, we hear a glint of works righteousness. You know, somebody's saying that you've got to work or put forth some effort to stop sinning or something. No, 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 no. You're legalistic. You're legalistic. Don't tell me what i got to do. And so, you know, you, then you process through that, and then you get to a place where it's like, okay, I'm not chasing revival. I mean, we're just not a church that's chasing revival, you know? And what I mean by that is we're not waiting for God to do some external sovereign move that we can all raw and cheer and get behind and hope a bunch of people show up at our meetings as if that's what it's going to take for the world to experience God. I mean, I think it's because like we sang, it's the kindness, it's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. If you want to see revival, preach God's goodness. Amen. You don't have to preach repentance. People will repent when they see his goodness. So then you come to this place and you kind of settle in and it's, you know, I know, I know God. I, I'm not running away from him when I mess up anymore. I, I, I'm, I'm, not throwing away believing in the supernatural. I've, I've become established in the new covenant. And then, it, you know, if you don't then transition into intentionally engaging in this relationship with God, you feel like everything's, all your fun religious activities have been taken away from you. It's like, what do I do now? Anybody been there? Nobody's. Oh, yeah. 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 Huh? They weren't fun. Okay, those, those uh, silly, I don't know, whatever. I'm trying to be nice. But do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Because you get to a place and it's like, okay, I still, I still you know, I'm, I'm closer to God than I ever have been. 
I still believe in everything that I believed. I'm just not trying to work for it anymore. I still desire to see healing through my hands. I still desire to reach the nations, all that stuff. But once the pressure and the obligation is taking off, then you find out what's really in your heart. Then you find out what was motivating you to begin with. And if you process through all that stuff and it brings you to a place of inactivity, that may not necessarily be a bad thing. It just means don't stay there. And by activity, I mean sharing your faith and being generous and doing whatever the work of, the, of ministry in our communities, you know. I mean, a lot of times people think that they're not actually serving or doing the work of the ministry unless they've got a title and on staff somewhere. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to create the mindset that everybody has to have a formal ministry to be fulfilling your call. You, know, you, you don't have to become a pastor. You don't have to be up front getting recognition. I mean, if, if in your natural walk you end up in a traditional position, then so be it. But, you know, I think, I think we've robbed the world of Christians being free by imposing these obligations. And so we're just going to be this place that is a community, that we know who we are. We're going to bring people in so they come, become established. But we're going to continue to rise in our passion toward God so that that spills out on people. And if you find yourself in a place where it's like, yeah, I'm cool with God, but there just doesn't seem to be that fire and that passion, this is one area to look. And I think it's just basically thankfulness. You know, have you really taken the time? I mean, Linda, three days without water, but she's, she can't even talk because she's so overwhelmed with gratitude toward God. And don't compare yourself to her. I'm not saying that, but it's, you know, is that within you? Is there a passion within you that causes you to just look at him and, oh, wow. And then are we showing that to the world because of his goodness? So I just want to look at thankfulness a little bit. Interesting thing about thankfulness, gratitude, and food. This is your health tip for the day. Some people start with jokes. Today I'm going to start with a health tip. <laughs> Gratitude. Let me back up. There was, and I, I, I can find, I read this a while ago, and I, I tried to find the source to cite it for you today. I couldn't find it. I'll try and find it and put it in an email or something, or you can email me. But there was a study done on weight loss and food. And just general health. And, of course, the factors of diet and exercise and all that are a factor, but they, they studied specifically a group of people that have done diets and done different types of exercising but continue to stay the same weight. And they brought it down to it's more of a mental and emotional self-perspective than it is diet. And some, you know, some studies show that how you see yourself is more of a factor than your diet and your exercise in regard to what you look like and, and what you weigh and all that. So, but this particular area, they started looking at the emotions, trying to figure out, well, so why do some people stay the same even when they try really hard to, you know, make good choices food-wise? 
and, and they brought it, they, they looked at different emotions and they studied people and they would ask questions. You know how they control everything when they're doing a, an experiment. And the conclusion that they came to is that the, the absolute best attitude or frame of mind to have when you sit down in front of a meal is the attitude of gratitude. Because when you are thankful or when you are appreciative, even for that food, the body chemistry that happens is your DNA relaxes, you release the proper hormones, you release the proper uh, digestive juices so that your body chemi- you know, chemically works best to metabolize your food when you're thankful. Conversely, if you sit down and you look at that meal and you're afraid or you have trepidation or guilt or all the emotions that we have, and I would say that, you know, those of you that want to make healthy food choices, when you sit down, check yourself, you know, what am I feeling right now? Do I, am I thankful for this or am I, do I have guilt? Do, you know, what is it? Be real with yourself and process through and give thanks. But isn't it interesting that, you know, God never said, Ask me to bless your food. He already told us in the old covenant that this food's healthy, that food's not. Don't eat this, eat that. Now, we don't obey those for righteousness, but they're good for health, you know. Shrimp and crab and pork and, you know, catfish, all that stuff that God says doesn't eat. It's for a reason. It's because it's unhealthy, not because it's going to send you to hell. So, that's the help tip. I just find that interesting, right? God's pretty smart. You know, it, it's, it's not like he said, when you sit down, I want you to be thankful for your food because that'll show me that you're worthy of a blessing. You know, the wisdom that God has given us throughout the ages is not for his benefit. It's for ours. The law was never for his benefit. Sacrifices were not for his benefit. They were for ours. They were to sanctify us and cleanse us and show us that we needed a savior and remind us that we're not good enough on our own. And it's always for our benefit. The wisdom that he's given us is for our benefit. So when he says things like be thankful or don't allow a root of bitterness to rise up inside of you or that like anger rots your bones, and they've, you know, they've discovered that that's actually true. The emotion, the, an abiding sense of anger, those people have bone issues, uh, you know, more than others. So I, I just, I, and I remember reading this study and thinking, you know, I just want to be able to read the Word of God, and whether I understand the backdrop and the depth and all the chemistry that goes along with it and whatever all the details are, I just want to be able to read the Bible and say, God, you're smarter than me. You made all this. I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to apply it, whether I understand why or not, whether I understand the depths of it or not. I'm just going to do your word. I'm just going to believe it. Come on. I'm just going to believe his word. So, let's look at unthankfulness for a little bit and what it produces. Romans 1.21. You know, when you look at the plight of the Israelites, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 children that are the 12 tribes of Israel, through which we have the Hebrew nation that became Jews later and different part of history. 
So everything that we know about God in regard to covenants and everything has been revealed to us through this lineage, through Abraham's children. And that was the seed, ultimately, that produced the Messiah in the earth. And that's why God viciously protected those people because he had to fight off those giants and those half-breed monster things that were roaming around trying to corrupt all of mankind's bloodline and protect that seed, protect that pure human that could be birthed as the Messiah. Wait a minute. My mind is still in my fiction book for a second there. That's... <laughs> I went a little further than... So, Romans one twenty one. <clears throat> Uh, a little bit out of context, I'm just going to read this one verse. It says, because although they knew God, they really meaning everybody, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, you know, we see here that unthankfulness is tied to our hearts being darkened and our thoughts just being silly. Psalm 78. Flip over to Psalm 78 in your iPods and your iPads and your books. and We're going to read. What's that? In your Bible. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> or the wall. But I want, I want to take, I'm going to read a lot here. So, you know, keep up. Get yourself ready. Get ready for reading mode. Because we're going to look at a little bit of a history of what the Israelites did. Once they were delivered from Egypt, they were out in the desert. Could have just walked with God straight on through to the promised land. But understanding what happens here, I think, gives great insight into our capacity or, or the kind of relationship that we have with God or, or even just the nature of God. That's probably a better way to say it. Looking at the example and the illustration that we have in a group of people following God that are in covenant with Him, trying to connect with what He has for us and stay focused on His Word and, and where they go with it. And it's a warning for us. Now, keep in mind, we're under a new covenant. We're not under this kind of covenant that they were under. So, and I'll touch on that after we read this, and I'll make a couple of comments, but... Psalm 78. I, I would encourage you to do this. <clears throat> Read this week all of Psalm 78. Don't forget that you're under the new covenant, that you've been engrafted into relationship with the Father in Jesus, and that it's not you that are supposed to keep the covenant. It was Jesus that kept the covenant and keeps the covenant for us eternally, and we enter into that relationship through him. For these guys back then, the covenant was on them. If they missed it, the penalty was on them. Not true for us. Big, big, big factor. If you don't understand that, then, man, it's time to go take Christianity 101 again. Unfortunately, a lot of the Christian world doesn't understand that. So, Psalm 78, we're going to start in verse 4 just to kind of set it up. Uh, we will not hide them. He, verse 1, he says, we're going, to, we're going to tell the children of Israel what has happened throughout their lives so, verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. Verse 8, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright 
and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, there's better ways to say that, but right off the bat, probably the biggest issue that the Israelites had was in their heart, they didn't trust God. In their heart, they, didn't, they weren't established in God's promise. They kept forgetting and complaining about the last miracle. They just weren't grounded in who God was toward them. They kept turning to idols and false gods and, you know, their own strength. And for these guys, they kept breaking the covenant. But for you, you cannot break the new covenant. It is impossible for you to break the covenant that God has with Christ. You're just caught up in it by faith. That's good news. So here we've got this brief history. Verse 9. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. He's kind of reminding them. And I think this is what we should do. We should be able to give ourselves an account of all the times we know that God has shown up. And I hate that phrase. But, you know, that we know that God has been there. But that we know that without God, you would have died or failed or not come through or whatever, you know. Be able to recognize the times where you know God has been faithful. And for every one, there's probably a thousand that you don't know about. Be thankful for that too. You know, they used to say, confess all the sins, even the ones that you don't remember. Forget that. (laughs) Confess what you're thankful for, even all the things you don't know about. Amen. So verse 9, verse 10, they did not keep the covenant of God. Again, you are in the new covenant in Jesus. So they refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. So they broke the covenant, their hearts weren't toward him, and they forgot what he had done. Verse 12, marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the, in the daytime also he led them with the cloud and at night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink in abundance like the depth. I mean, he's preaching now. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. I mean, can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine this wall splitting and all of a sudden millions of gallons of water come pouring out to feed a nation for years? And they forgot So, verse 17, but they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, and they tested God in their heart. Who tested who? They tested God. This, you know, them wandering in the desert was not God testing them. The day of provocation was not God provoking them. It was, this is how they tested him. By asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? You ever ask that? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? So, I mean, here's the thing. Can God, they're, they're, you know, in one accord saying, 
Is God just left us? He just left us for dead? We'd rather go back to slavery. We'd rather go back to bondage. And I, you know, I see this as a grace journey too, because you move forward in the new covenant in understanding your identity, and it's like, okay, I'm leaving behind religion. I'm deciding to just be completely dependent on the finished work of Jesus. There's nothing that I can do to make myself more qualified. And then it's like, okay, well, so what do I hold on to? You know, what, what, what is it that, that gives me confidence to have hope and trust toward God if it's not in my religious activity? Well, it better be in Jesus. It better be in this rock. And that's really what he's saying here is you've got this rock in your life that provided life for you and all the people that are with you. Don't forget about that. You know, we forget about Jesus. We forget that he's actually with us and made us complete and made us new creations. So, you know, we don't say, I mean, we, I don't know how, we miss how this relates to us. Because for us, it's like, okay, God, can you really make sure that I don't lose my house? Or can you really heal me of this, you know, whatever it is. Can you really restore my marriage? Can you really bring that person into the kingdom? I mean, what's impossible for God? Nothing. Nothing. Why, why do we have such a hard time believing in anything that he's already promised? I think, I think it's we get our, our heart. Our heart is not stayed fat, steadfast on him. You know, or... You know, you, you, what they have, what they have, what happened here is they got water. But then it says, can you give us bread? Then they got manna. It's like, okay, you want bread? Here, here's your bread. Then they said, can he provide meat? You know, they just kept, and it's not that they misasked. It's not a wrong prayer to ask God for more. I mean, if you've got water and you want bread, it's not technically wrong to ask God for bread to go with the water. But their problem was what was going on in their hearts. They were out of covenant, which is impossible for you, and they were not thankful in their hearts. They were not established in trusting him. This was more like, so what? You just going to leave us for dead? I mean, we got some water. What about some bread? You know, it was just, it was just not... An attitude of gratitude, so to speak. It was not, it was provoking him rather than trusting him. You see the difference? They provoked God. So here's what happens. Now remember, you're under the new covenant. We have the promise of the established kingdom, which was the, the uh, gospel of the kingdom. You know, we see it in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and then fulfilled in the life of Jesus, obviously, in the ascension. But that is that once the new covenant was established, once Jesus had risen from the dead, then Isaiah 53 and 54 kicks in, and that is his promise of, I will no longer be angry with you, and I will no longer rebuke you. The covenant of my peace is everlasting. That's where we are now, is in that covenant of peace that's everlasting where God is no longer angry with us or the entire world because of the sin has been removed. So don't forget that when we read this part. Verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, or 
all of the Israelites, is what he's saying here. And anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. I mean, God takes it seriously when people don't believe in him. I mean, it's the commandment, right? When Jesus says, I give you new commandments over in 1 John 3, he says, I command you to believe on his name. New covenant commandments only carry promises, no cursing, because Jesus already took the curse. But it's up to us, are we going to keep that commandment? Are we going to be steadfast in our hearts toward him? Now, I'm not trying to say that God's going to be angry with you or not bless you or anything, but we, you, let me keep going because you'll see what happened in their hearts. Um, verse 23, Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat, and given them of the bread of heaven, men ate angels' food. I mean, what is that all about? He sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow. So this is in response to them saying, okay, we got some water. Uh, we got some bread. Uh, how about a little meat? Well, glad you asked. Verse 27. <clears throat> he also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. He gave them what they asked for. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, so that they ate and were fulfilled, and were filled. And he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futilities and their years in fear. <clears throat> to be, but they didn't. I mean, did they have to be afraid? No. This isn't what he wanted. This was the response that they provoked as a lack of trusting him. If they simply would have just trusted. It, and they didn't even have to do anything. All they had to do was just follow the cloud and follow the fire and keep their hearts open toward him and not complain and want to go back to their religious captivity. They could have just had everything handed to them. I, I, you know, this is where we are. So... I think when we're fully eternal, if it were possible, we'll look back on, you know, looking at all those wasted years of fear that, that we didn't have to be in. I mean, they, it, I know I'm trying to, I'm trying to rush here is what I'm doing, so take your time. But this thing, their years in fear stands out to me because it was unnecessary. It wasn't what God wanted. You know, the, the time that we spend in confusion, the time that we spend worrying, remember we talked about worrying last week and we looked at Matthew 6, and he says, God knows what you need before you ever even ask. And he ties his willingness to provide to his worth, his value for them. You know, look at the birds. They don't work, but yet they're fed. Are you not worth much more than them? Now, God's willingness to provide for them was his value for them, not their performance for him. Not even their intensity of faith or fervor or, or anything. It was just 
in their hearts, they were not open to trusting him. And it, and it provoked this type of response from God. You know, how, how much do we do that? How much do we stay in fear and limit God? Let me keep going. So when he slew them, this is verse 34, <clears throat> they sought him not and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Well, I would hope so. Verse 35, then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Now, see, it didn't have to happen that way, but it was a response that turned them back to God. But under the new covenant, it's his kindness. It's his mercy. It's, this, it's what he's done in Christ and offers to us is what our motivation is. And when we go back in the old covenant and we drag up these kinds of stories and put them in the face of the world, we're doing God an injustice. We're throwing the cross away. It's not that God changed, but the covenant changed. You know, it's the kind of beings that we are now and the wrath being satisfied, the righteousness of the law being fulfilled that didn't cause God to change, but it removed the requirement because it had already been satisfied. So what was left was just nothing but the nature of the Father, not the retribution. The judge had sat down and closed the case. It was done. Never to be tried again. And we live in Jesus from there forward. Man, I'm telling you, that's good news. So, verse 36. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him. Nor were they faithful in his covenant, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. At the time of the cross, he did. Every bit of wrath, not toward because he was angry necessarily with mankind, but because he was angry at sin. He was angry at what we had allowed to separate us from him. And that needed to be punished. And it was the law that said that the punishment had to be executed in the body of the sinner. So the one man became sin for us all. The one man who was the only qualified human lamb, perfect righteous sacrifice, absorbed all of the retribution, all of the wrath that God had. I mean, he had to hold it back from these guys. But when Jesus was on that cross, he held nothing back. God, will, God is never angry with you. God is never seeking to bring judgment against you. I'm telling you, people get nervous over that. I've had people come to this church and visit other churches, and they'll come back, and they go, and they come, and they go, and then I'll get these emails, and then it's like, you know, I'm thinking of this one conversation that kind of keeps circling around about, you know, don't you think that maybe there's just every now and then he's got a little bit of, it's like, no, how? How in the world could he have put everything on Jesus and then saved up a little bit for you? (laughs) And by the way, you're never really quite sure because it comes in the form of a tornado because of the way they're behaving in California or the covenant that the Haitians made with the devil. God had to wipe them out. Man, that is not remotely God. 
under the new covenant. It just doesn't happen. So, verse 38. Uh, let's see, verse 39. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Verse 40. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted God. And this is fascinating that God would subject him to this. And they limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. See, when you take this into account, you take the whole story of what these guys went through, it was their fear and it was their unthankfulness, it was their unwillingness to stay open toward him and continue to trust him, which really was all driven by fear, that limited God. Our fear, now this is, this is still true today. Our fear limits God because just like these guys, it undermines his power. It keeps us focused on what we lack and causes our hearts to not be in faith toward him. Everything God has for us is experienced by grace through faith. Not God just showing up and doing some type of external sovereign work. Now, God may work through other people in your lives, and I'm not even trying to define all the ways that God works. But it is still true that even in our own lives, when we're in fear and we're in worry and we're looking at what we don't have and we're angry with God because he gave us water, but we don't yet see the bread, even though he wanted to give the bread and we got the bread and we want the meat and we don't have the meat. And he's like, I've got more meat than you can even eat. But it was a provocation kind of thing. He still gave it to them even when they had the wrong attitude. God gave them everything that they needed even when they were pointing their finger in his face. How much more we as children does he want to bless us and give us his kingdom? I mean, it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So, just like the Israelites, we test God and we put him on trial rather than just believing. We do. It's like, all right, God, I know you met this need, but it's a half miracle. Is it up to me to do the rest? Are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? So it's like we see it begin, but then we get in the flesh and we start judging the rest of the manifestation rather than just remaining in faith, rather than just remaining steadfast in his love for us and following that cloud until complete manifestation. You know, I don't want to make this a formula. So I'm not even remotely saying that we should try to model this, but it was interesting for these guys that they had walked out of the middle of an ocean that was heaped up, it says. You guys seen the cartoon version of uh, what's the Prince of Egypt? And, you know, when the whale comes up against the, you can see the whale. And, I mean, I'm telling you, that's just so amazing. <coughs> They come out the other side, the water completely devastates the enemy, never to be heard from again. And 
it could have taken them 10 days to just walk. I, I wonder how many days it took them where they were still excited and they were still thankful. Probably till they got hungry. You know, probably till they got really thirsty. Then, then the, the last miracle just went out the window. Then the fear kicked in. Then the, then the self-preservation mode kicked in. And probably what would have taken maybe seven more days to just walk with God cinnamon circles for 40 years. You know, we look at this and we're like, oh, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But, you know, we do it too. We do it too. We forget. I mean, so, so the thing I was referring to, don't make this a formula, is, you know, we, we come out of the gate thankful and we're ready to see that miracle. But then what happens after that two or three day mark, you know? For those guys, it was just a 10 day period. If they had remained steadfast toward God, would have walked straight through. And I wonder what would happen if our lives, if we'd make a 10-day commitment to not be afraid and not get scared and not turn away and forget what he's promised. And, you know, I don't know. Just a thought. So how could they have avoided this pain and difficulty? Well, technically, based on what caused them to experience it, it was they could have remembered God's works kept their hearts established in his promise, and kept the covenant. Those are the three things that caused them to get off track, experience God's wrath, and not experience what he wanted to do for them. Number one, remember God's works. You know, we talk about that a lot in here. Do, do you remember? Are you, are you thankful for what has happened in the past? Or do we judge measures of it, you know? That's up to you. Where do you go with that? Are you keeping your heart established in his grace? I mean, the word says it's a good thing that your heart be established in grace. Grace being his power in you. And then the third one is keeping the covenant. Who's that on? Jesus. Amen. So remembering with gratitude gives us confidence to trust God. And I know I've got a ton of scriptures in here, but 1 John 3, if you want to put that in your notes and go check that out as well, it says that when you have confidence toward God, you have everything that you ask for. I mean, just think about that. that that's, I think about that one passage often. If your heart doesn't condemn you, then you have confidence toward God. And when you have confidence toward God, you have everything that you ask for. And then the preacher gets up there and tries to explain what he really meant. So I see now, I didn't really mean everything. Everything doesn't mean everything. Everything only means when you're really, you know, in need. He'll meet your needs, but everything else is like, you, you know, no, everything means everything. I, I don't want to have to answer to God when he says, hey, you know that scripture that you watered down because you couldn't trust me and you did it for everybody else too? I don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> so if you are challenged by this scripture, then good. I want you to be. I mean, search it out. How dare he make that kind of a statement? Anything you ask in my name, I will do it. Anything you ask in my name, the Father will do it. 
when you have confidence toward God, anything that you ask for, you'll have. You know, just, just anything that comes into your mind and your heart after you read those kinds of passages, let them sh- reveal yourself to you. Let them serve as a, as a revealing of your own heart to you of where you're limiting God. You know, do that. Read those passages and then just sit and see what you feel like. See how you feel. Decide if you really believe that or not. And if you don't, just make the decision to believe it. Do whatever it takes to persuade your heart that he meant, he meant that. He meant that. And, and you know what's interesting? When he says things like that, he doesn't bother to explain why it doesn't happen. You ever notice that? He just doesn't. He's not, I don't think God even thinks that way. It's like he says something. And then, and then the humans go, yeah, but this and that and this and that. He's, I, I think God would say, I don't, I don't even think that way. I, you, you heard what I said, right? You know, it's like us with our kids. We say something and they either just don't do it or they run and do their own thing. And you're like, wait a minute. I was speaking your language, right? You know, they disappear and you walk in and hours later and it's like, what, what happened? I thought I said this. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. I think that's what God does. He's like, okay. So let's look at this in light of Jesus for a minute. John 6. John 6, starting in verse 2. So then a great mult this is about Jesus. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain and there sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that all of these people are going to eat? But verse 6 is very interesting, and depending on how you see God, you know, that's what's going to, you're going to filter this next passage through. But verse 6 says, but he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So they're sitting up there, Jesus is hanging out with his inner circle, his closest disciples, and he's just done other miracles, and they're excited. You know, they're thinking the kingdom is coming. We're, us Jews are about to have what we're supposed to have. And here comes a bunch of people, and Jesus already knows how he's going to meet the need. So he looks to Philip. Let's see here. In verse 5, and he says, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? So, this is, and, I, and I've got other teachings on this, but just to, just to make this short, where it says he said this to test him, it's the same word that was used when Paul talks about Abraham was tested of God, but it's a different word in James 1 where it talks about don't say when you're tempted or when you're tested that it's from God because God does not tempt you, neither test you. Uh, that, that kind of testing comes from 
basically sin. And then tribulation comes when you give in to that sin and you're struggling with temptation. That's tribulation that happens to you. There is then also external pressure that comes as uh, for standing up for the kingdom. But there's two different kinds of tests that happens. One, God does. One, God doesn't. The times you see when God does test, it's an inward thing. Was God, was Jesus making Philip's life difficult? Was he putting disease on him? Was he allowing the devil to enter into his life? No. He was trying to find out what's in your heart, Philip. Where are you with my limitlessness? You know, and, and because Jesus was there in the flesh, he wasn't going to be limited by Philip. Although Jesus was limited in other places when he tried to perform certain miracles, he couldn't because they were limiting God. They knew him. They recognized him. They, they discredited the power of God because they were familiar with the man. Yep. So even in the life of Jesus, we see that the power of God is limited. But it was the condition of the other people's hearts that was the factor, not his own. So here, you know, he's not testing. He's not creating torment or putting Philip on trial. He's just trying to get Philip to put his attention on himself. You know, where are you? So when you hear God ask you questions, do you believe that I can do this? Do you want this? Whatever, however God talks to you, don't let it create guilt and condemnation because he's the comforter. He's the teacher. He's the helper. You know, when God asks a question, it's, you can just go ahead and assume there's a lesson for you to be learned, not because he needs an answer. And the lesson is going to put you in a position to be more open to him so that he can work through you. Amen. So the way God works in our lives is through our hearts. We even see it with Jesus, with the people that he lived with closely. He was, he was trying to get into Philip's head and into Philip's heart so Philip would see within himself what he believed and where his focus was. So this is, uh, let's see, Mark six fifty two. This is after, this is a parallel passage, and this is after the miracle of the loaves, and then the boys are going across the, the sea, and Jesus is up praying, and then Jesus comes walking on the water through the middle of a storm, and they look at him in the middle of their storm, and they're afraid. You know? And I think we're, I mean, there's just so many parallels here because depending on the condition of our heart, if we're in the middle of a storm, you might see Jesus, but it might cause fear within you because, you, you know, we're not sure sometimes. Does he really want me healed? Does he really want to meet this need? And we have to completely make sure that we're grounded in his goodness, grounded in this covenant that we're complete and his will for us is his promises are yes and amen. So he gets in the boat, the storm stops. And what's said of them when they respond and they tell him they were afraid and they have this conversation, it says, they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart was hardened. They weren't thankful. I, I, you know, you can look at this and you can look at every other passages in regard to staying open to trusting God when the heart's mentioned. Thankfulness is always tied to it, like we saw in Romans one twenty one. These guys weren't thankful 
when Jesus met the need to begin with. They may have been thankful in the moment, but they didn't continue on that. They didn't continue in gratitude toward God, expecting to live that kind of lifestyle from there forward. You know, they got the need met, and then they moved on. The next storm that came, I mean, this is like the night of the miracle. You know, I mean, he fed 20,000 people. I don't know how many people. It says 5,000 men. They didn't count women and children back then. So, you, you know, they didn't have TV. So there's probably five kids a family out there. <laughs> they had 150,000 people out there, you know. I don't know. There's a lot of people. So the heart, you know, the condition of your heart because we talk about that a lot, and this is, I know I'm, I'm giving you a lot of information, but I want to give you enough information so that you understand your responsibility. And your responsibility is keep your heart open and focused and ready to believe him at the drop of a hat and stay thankful in the process, not focusing on what you don't have. Because if you don't, it will begin, your heart will begin to harden. And when your heart is hard, you have difficulty believing God. And when you have difficulty believing God, you can't experience what he has for you. You actually limit God, just like the children of Israel. Now, we, people have trouble with that. I'm telling you, there are people that have, maybe even some in this room that have trouble with, but no, but, you're, but God can do anything he wants to. It doesn't matter what I say. Blah, blah, blah. It mattered to the Israelites. It's in the Bible. I think we should take it seriously. It doesn't mean that God is completely limited to you, but in your life and what you experience personally with him, there is an arc that is predominantly affected by where your heart is toward God. Can God do anything? Absolutely. God can do anything he wants to do. But he's chosen to give this earth and this realm to mankind and co-labor with mankind for whatever reason. And he's good in the midst of it. And he wants to bless you. He's seeking to bless you. It's just a matter of us staying open toward him. Don't let fear creep in. Don't let doubt creep in. Don't let forgetfulness creep in. Don't let laziness creep in. Because it hardens your heart. And when your heart is hard... You won't experience what he has for you. I'm sure there's a bunch of other factors, but that's, that just resonates within me. I just see it so clearly and in so many places. Even when you go and you read Hebrews chapter 3, and Paul is recounting uh, you know, this journey of the Israelites, he ties every aspect of them not experiencing what God has for them to the condition of their heart. And I'm not saying you got to have more faith or get more faith or grow your faith. I'm just saying, where are you in your trust toward God? How convinced and established in your heart are you that God can do anything through you? And I'll tell you a way that you'll know the answer to that question and it's what we did a minute ago. Read those passages that say, when you pray, if you believe... You'll have whatever you ask for. And then listen. Unthankfulness or not remembering what God has done comes from focusing on what you don't have. 
These are indicators. <clears throat> Unthankfulness or lack of gratitude is fuel for complaining and worry. If you find yourself worrying or complaining, take a step back and take a, an account for what you have to be thankful for. Lack of gratitude ultimately gets you to a place where you limit God and wander around in the desert in fear. Gratitude, thankfulness, and remembering what God has builds confidence and inspires faith to walk in grace, which is His power. So what will you put in place in your life to ensure that you do not forget what God has done for you and you remain thankful? I mean, for you, what does it take? What does it take for you to remember God, to remember what God has done? You know, sometimes it's easy. I mean, sometimes you wake up and it's just a big, bright, glaring light bulb. God has been here. You know, the handwriting is still on the wall. But however time goes by and things happen and difficulty happens and you, you haven't seen the full manifestation of the miracle and we begin to lean toward our own faith and then we water down what we're willing to believe for and we think, oh yeah, all that supernatural stuff, I don't know, I'm just going to, I'm glad I'm loved and you settle and, you know, stir up thankfulness, stir up gratitude. So... We hear these kinds of, when you hear these kinds of things, these kinds of questions, like what the Israelites asked, can God prepare a table in the midst of our trouble? You know, for us, it, it's, can God really do this? Well, I know he can, but I've been standing for this long and I haven't seen it yet. That's an indicator that unthankfulness is in there, that, that, that there is an, a part of your heart that is not elevating what he has done, but is more focused on what he hasn't done. Anytime we're in doubt and we're questioning, you can stir up faith with thankfulness. You can stir up faith with what has happened in your past. And so they asked him in the middle of the wilderness, can God prepare a table for you in the midst of your trouble? Then we go to Psalm 23, 5 and 6. <clears throat> and I know this is a lot of people's favorite and, and as well it should be. You, so this is the answer. Absolutely. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There's no qualification there. You anoint my head with oil. That means you're accepted. God has put his seal on you. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can God meet your need? Can God prepare a table for you in the midst of your trouble? Absolutely. And, and has much more for you than you can even imagine what he wants to do through you in that situation. What he wants for you is better than what you think the outcome should look like. I mean, what he wants for you is better than what you're praying for. In fact, he knows what you need before you ever even ask. You know, give yourself permission to get off that treadmill and just rest. You know, this is where we're going the week after next is looking at this rest, laboring to enter into this rest, mixing faith with the promise and experiencing what he has for us. Because we're not going to go backwards. We're not going to let the promises 
fall by the wayside. We're going to stand firm in God's love for us and trust him unto complete manifestation. Amen.